Welcome to the Queer Spirituality Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossenhill. This podcast is about an idea. It's the radical idea that queerness is a gift and that the divine celebrates it rather than merely accepts it. We'll explore the special role that queer people are meant to play in the coming spiritual awakening. Through the lives and stories of queer people, we'll explore the many ways of approaching the divine and how the sacred reveals itself in everyday actions. Most of all, this is a podcast about love. It's about the love of the universe. It's about love between people. And it's about the love a community can share with one another. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Queer Spirituality Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossenhill, and I want to take a moment to talk about something that I think is really important, and that is when I talk to gay and bi men, frequently I hear the sentiment that they don't like to be around other gay and bi men. They don't like to be part of the gay community because the community to them has been difficult to interact with. It's been bitchy and there's been put downs and I just, this really hurts my heart because I think as a community, we need to be building up and supporting one another. And so I've created a special retreat this October at Oakwood Retreat Center in Selma, Indiana. It's the Sacred Ken Samhain Retreat. And at this retreat, through workshops and exercises and experiences, and just spending time in queer space, we'll start to tear down some of those expectations and judgments that get in the way of really connecting with each other and really seeing one another so that we can build a supportive, strong community. And against the backdrop of that important work that we'll be doing, we'll also be honoring our queer ancestors, all of those people who have gone before us and helped pave the road that allows us to live as out gay and bi men today. So go check that out on my website, www.queerspirituality.net. Right on the homepage, you'll see Sacred Ken Samhain, so you can register for that. And as a listener of this podcast, when you do register, if you enter code PODCAST2023, you'll get $57 off of the registration price, which is about a little over 10% of the registration. So Go check that out. If you need payments to make payments, there are payment plans with no interest and no additional fees. You can pay over time up to this beginning of the gathering and you just choose partially at checkout to do that. So go ahead and go check that out. And again, that code is podcast 2023 to save some money on sacred Ken Samhain. Can't wait to see you there. So today on the show, I have a very special treat for you. I have a guest, Jack Chanick. And Jack Chanick is a Gardnerian Wiccan priest and the author of Queen of All Witcheries, Kabbalah for Wiccans, and Tarot for Real Life. He has been reading tarot since he was 11 years old and has taught workshops on tarot, Kabbalah, and Wicca around the country. Jack is a cis gay man for whom the experience of coming into Wicca coincided with coming out of the closet. Spirituality and queer identity have always gone hand in hand for him. He lives in New Jersey where he works as an academic philosopher 
specializing in Immanuel Kant's philosophy of science. Hello, Jack. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So first question I always like to ask all of my guests is what does queer spirituality mean to you? Uh, I think for me, the point of queer spirituality, if we're having a conversation about queer spirituality, it's about finding a spiritual space, not only where queerness is tolerated, but where it's actually uplifted and celebrated and seen as something special and worthy of its own kind of connection to the divine. So it's about creating spiritual spaces that don't just say like, yeah, sure, you can join if you want, but that really celebrate having queer members. Awesome. That's very similar to my own definition, because I've always found it frustrating that people experience religious trauma and then they go to basically the same spiritual path, but where they're accepted or, you know, you always hear the hate the sin, love the sinner BS. And, you know, and I always felt that spirituality, queer spirituality should celebrate it, not just accept it. And I think the other aspect of it for me is that it also needs to be sex positive. People shouldn't have to deny a big part of their existence in order to, to follow that particular path. So I love that there's such synergy there. Um, tell me a little bit about your spiritual path. How did you, how did you end up where you are now? <laughs> uh, you know, that story changes every time I tell it, not because I'm, I'm lying or making things up, but just because there were so many different things that all came together at once. And every time I tell the story, different parts of it seem salient. Um, I grew up in an aggressively non-religious household. I, uh, my father was raised Catholic and was bitter about that until the day he died. Um, and, you know, I also grew up in a part of America that was latently homophobic in the way that, like, I was never threatened or made to feel physically unsafe. But it was also understood that homosexuality or queerness were, you know, things that happened elsewhere in the world. And we don't really do that here. We don't really have that here. I didn't have any queer role models growing up. Um, it wasn't a thing that was part of my world. And around the time I left for college, you know, this sort of happens. You start to find some things out about yourself. Uh, and simultaneously, I, I began to explore my own queerness. And I also began to realize that uh, as much as I had been raised in this sort of atheistic, non-religious environment, that really wasn't me. And there was a part of me that really needed uh, the myth and the symbolism and the ritual and the you know dancing naked under the full moon. Uh, so I started experimenting with a couple of different spiritual paths. Around the time I moved to New York, I found a Gardnerian coven and I've been with them ever since. And then that process of self-exploration coincided with a lot of my exploring and coming to terms with my own sexuality. Those two things really happened at the same time. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's wonderful that it all sort of came at the same time for you because for so many people, it's like two different like processes and it's almost like coming out twice in a way it's like coming out as queer and then coming out as a witch or a pagan or, or whatever whatever that path is um i'm really curious about you know something that's kind of been on my mind when reading your bio earlier is i previously had initiated into the minoan brotherhood which is of course an offshoot of gardnerianism that was started in the 70s as a reaction to what at the time was rampant homophobia in the Gardnerian tradition, or at least that's the story that we hear. And so 
how has Gardnerianism evolved with the times or, or have they, is it just, you know, that there's some covens that are more open than others? Yeah, uh, for those who are listening along, you couldn't see me nodding emphatically uh, as Julian was speaking. Uh, so the Minoan Brotherhood was started by Eddie Paczynski, who was a gay Gardnerian initiate um, in New York, who was really kind of rejected by the community and who was pushed out for a lot of reasons. Um, and some of those reasons had to do with other things, right? Some of those reasons had to do with like classism and ordinary like petty interpersonal drama, which happens everywhere. But homophobia was a really large part of it. Um, and the thing I think that a lot of people don't want to admit uh, is that our religion is not insulated from politics. You know, we, we like to believe because we are doing a transcendent thing when we're doing religion or if you're not religious, but you're spiritual in some other way. We're doing a thing that connects us to something bigger than us and that feels powerful and sacred and special. And we don't want to feel like it's polluted by political discourse. But the fact of the matter is this is a thing that is being done by people and people bring their own biases with them, people bring their assumptions with them, bring, people bring the politics of the time with them. So the Gardnerian community has always been subject to the same sorts of political biases or conversations that are happening in society at large at the time that you know we're dealing with. So in the 1970s, the inclusion of gay men was considered anathema in certain corners of the Gardnerian tradition. You know, there, this idea that like Wicca is supposed to be a fertility religion, and how can gay men do fertility if they're having butt sex and not making babies? <laughs> right? um, <laughs> And, you know, that wasn't just a conversation that was happening in Wicca at the time. That was a conversation that was, in one way or another, being parroted all over the U.S. in all kinds of political conversations. And it just happened that it, it made its way into the Wiccan community in that form. And you still saw a, a lot of homophobia in the Wiccan community, really up through the 80s, the 90s. Like, it, as long as this has been a political issue in society at large, it has also been an issue in Wiccan spaces. Um, right now, the culture war that's happening is less so about cis gay people and much more so about trans or gender non-conforming individuals. And you see that in American politics. And surprise, surprise, you also see those conversations being had by reactionary elements of the Wiccan community. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately what it boils down to is that, like, those are political conversations and people are importing their politics into their Wicca and then assuming that they're just being, you know, theological about it. And, oh, I'm, I'm not bigoted. I'm not transphobic. This is just my theology because we're a fertility religion. And that's stupid. That's just an excuse that people use to try to exclude queer folks. Um, but you know, there, there's nothing inherent about Wicca that requires us to be queer exclusionary. And there have been elements of the Wiccan community going back as far as Eddie Paczynski, but there have certainly been people who were really advocating for queerness in Wicca and for this idea that queerness should be something that can be celebrated and uplifted in Wicca and not merely tolerated. And I, I think that certainly um, up to the present day, that is a much larger component of the Wiccan community than it was back when Eddie was alive. 
Yeah, great. That's a wonderful answer. Thanks for, for thanks for all that detail because you kind of hit a lot of things there, you know, because the homophobia in the 70s and then obviously we've seen the trans thing um and actually it's kind of been going on for a while because there was all the drama that happened at PantheaCon many years ago um around the trans thing and of course the Dianic Wiccans who wouldn't accept trans women. So, um and it, I love how you talk about the politics, you know, it, it is people and they bring what, you know, I'm, I'm a human design person, so I kind of draw on the human design um, vocabulary. So they bring their conditioning with them, right, even into their spirituality. So I, I love that. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit in talking about the trans thing. I was I was on your website and you have a video. I didn't have time to watch all of it. But just for people who are new to to all of this or maybe thinking about Gardnerianism, you had a video recently on your on your site where you talked about gender roles in Gardnerianism. And I think people have an idea that they're very sort of old fashioned and static in that tradition. So, you know, you've addressed it on your website, but just for for listeners here, can you address that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the biggest things to realize is that no two covens in Gardnerian Wicca are exactly the same. Uh, Gardnerian Wicca is decentralized. There is no central authority. There is no like set of bylaws that every coven abides by. So different covens approach things in different ways. And some covens are pretty queer phobic. Like those covens exist. A lot of them happen to be in parts of the country that are also just sort of politically queerphobic, right? Like a lot of transphobic covens end up in, you know, Florida. Um, that's not to say that every coven in Florida is going to be trans exclusionary or is going to be homophobic, but these things follow the, the political map. Um, but just as much as there are covens that are going to be very rigid with gender roles or that are going to be very sort of exclusionary, there are also covens that are very inclusive and oriented around making queer practitioners feel, feel welcome. Uh, the coven that I belong to is run by a lesbian couple. Uh, so the high priestess is a femme lesbian. Uh, she's not a lesbian, she's bisexual, but the, she's a femme woman who is married to a woman. Uh, the, high, the acting high priest of the coven is a butch lesbian. Uh, and she works as the high priest in the coven because that is the way of moving magic and participating in circle that is most authentic for who she is. Uh, I also know lots of trans and non-binary initiates in the craft who might not always have a particular way of working in circle, right? Sometimes they might do things the way that a priestess is trained to do things. Sometimes they might do things the way a priest is trained to do things. And sometimes they might just stir it all up and do things totally differently um, as a way of sort of bringing their own authentic identities into their magic, into their spirituality, and allowing that to be reflected in who they are, not just as an individual, but also as a member of a spiritual community. So I think for people who are interested in Wicca, but worried that these like strong gender roles might be exclusionary or might not be for them, the thing to do is to reach out to any covens that are near you and have a conversation with them. Because it's possible that those covens might have really rigid roles that wouldn't be right for you, that wouldn't fit you. But it's also possible that they'll say, hey, we like you. We want you to be who you are with us. So come join our circles, tell us who you are, and we'll figure out a way to make the circles inclusive for you. 
Um, and certainly that's the experience that I've had as a gay man in the craft. That's the experience that the queer initiates that I know have had. Um, and it's it's a damn good experience. It's a really wonderful feeling. Yeah, definitely. I think I think you hit on an important point there that you've got to reach out to different groups and kind of, you know, no two covens are going to be the same within a tradition. And you have to kind of shop shop around, really. But I think people have a bad experience with one one coven, you know, that doesn't accept them or that there's a lot of drama in it or it's a cult of personality around one of the people. And they sort of then write off the whole tradition because a lot of these things that we hear about initiatory traditions, not just Gardnerianism, tend to be related to, I had a bad experience with a person from that tradition. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which, you know, is legitimate, right? That's how we all make judgments. Is I had I had a bad experience with one representative member of this group, and therefore I'm generalizing on that and judging the rest of the group. But um, you know, it's because Wicca is so decentralized. You you there's just no way of predicting from one coven to the next. And this yeah. is true not just in matters of like queer inclusivity, but also in terms of you know you could go to a coven and just not click with them. Uh, or it yeah. could be, you know, that coven is a cult of personality or whatever. And that says nothing about what the next coven is going to be like. Uh, so it's just very hard to yeah. tell. Yeah. And it, it is a human nature thing to do. And so I guess, you know, the the advice that I always give to people is resist that that temptation, right? Go out and talk to some different people, not just one group, because otherwise you're really missing out. So I teach a lot around witchcraft and magic, and I'm I've been in a number of initiatory traditions from, you know, ceremonial orders to, you know, Minoan Brotherhood, different, different things. And so I understand the value of these initiatory traditions, but sometimes when um, talking to people who have just read books by Llewellyn or are new and are sort of exploring, I hear a lot of criticism about gatekeeping and that they're, that the idea that these groups are are cliquish or don't really have a lot to offer. And obviously I know that's not true, but I want to hear your, like, what would you, how would you explain to a student the value of going through the process to get into an initiatory tradition? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that if you're not interested in joining a coven, you don't have to, right? If, if it's yeah. not for you, that's entirely okay. And by all means, you are welcome to, practice your spirituality in the way that is right for you, and you don't need to feel like you're being forced into a coven dynamic. Right. For those of us who, who like covens, who seek out a coven experience, part of it is having a community. Part of it is having a really intimate, close-knit community of people that you can do magic with, of people that you can worship with, um, and people, you know, by whom you can feel seen. Humans are social animals. We want connection. We want to be able to share our experiences. And in religion, we want to be able to share our experience of the divine and our experience of magic. And having a coven, what it really boils down to is having a group of people that you like, that you get along well with, that you trust, and with whom you can share this beautiful, magical thing. Um, different covens have different levels of sort of hierarchy associated with them. So Gardnerian Wicca is 
famous, and not wrongly so, for being more hierarchical, being more structured, where the high priestess sure. is in charge, and, you know, there are initiates, and as opposed to some covens in other traditions, right, the reclaiming tradition of witchcraft is famous for being much less hierarchical, and being more egalitarian, and there's sort of like a rotating role of leadership so that no one person has power over anything like that. Um, in the more structured covens, there's this idea that in, in Gardnerian Wicca in particular, you are being trained as a priesthood. And there is this relationship, not of like, I'm the Grand High Poobah and everyone needs to bow down to me, but of I have experience in this particular tradition, I have experience in this kind of thing, and you don't have to listen to me about everything, but if you want to learn how to do this particular thing, I've done it before, let me teach you. Um, and that is, I think, the, the healthy version of what the hierarchy is. People get very scared of hierarchy, especially when they have a lot of religious trauma from you know, very domineering religious backgrounds. Hierarchy itself does not have to be a bad thing as long as it doesn't become totalizing or a cult of personality or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Not all hierarchy is abusive and can actually be beneficial. So... Um, I want to get into talking about your latest book, a queen of queen of all witcheries, which when I heard the title, I first was like, Oh, Jeeks monsoon. Right. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, so the, so the, the, the sort of sub, uh, title is a biography of the goddess. And you really break down in this book, a lot of the different myths of the goddess and different ideas about the goddess. And in one part you talk about, um, that the modern goddess is very different from, you know, the, we already know that, that there's no unbroken line. This isn't an ancient tradition revived. You know, we've recreated this, but the goddess has taken on a very different characteristic in modern times from how she was understood, even in all these different periods of time that you explore in the book. So I'd love if you could kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I um, I wrote the book because the big boom of goddess publishing kind of ended roughly at the end of the 1990s, start of the 2000s. And there haven't been a lot of books on the goddess published since then. And part of what that means is all of the really good books about the goddess we have are 20 years out of date, yeah. uh, at least. And they're still good, they're still valuable, they still have a lot to say, but there are a couple of things in them that you like you hand someone a book and you're like okay listen skip over the history ignore the parts about abortion it like you know ignore the homophobia like and and there's still some good stuff in there and i wanted a book that i could hand someone and say like here's the goddess as i know her now and here's some of the history of how she came to be known in the world without outdated conceptions about gender without outdated historical claims you know so I wanted to tell a story that showed not just who the goddess is as we understand her now, but also that she is this very sort of particular figure and has taken on a life of her own in the modern world um, and isn't exactly like anything we find in the ancient world. So, you know, I, there are goddesses aplenty in the ancient world. But when I say the goddess to you, I'm talking about a really particular figure, right? She is right. a moon goddess. She's probably a mother goddess. Maybe she's got a triple goddess maiden mother crone thing going on. She's a patroness of witchcraft. She's a goddess of love and sex. She like, that's a particular figure. 
And we don't find that goddess anywhere in the ancient world. And so as it turns out, she's this real distinct modern deity who comes to be known in the world starting in about the mid 19th century as various practitioners and historians and archeologists and you know, magical practitioners all come together and build up this idea of what they think goddess worship should be like. And right. the, the goal of the book is to sort of tell that story. Yeah, yeah, and I think you've done it really well because you know, I, I'm kind of a hard polytheist and the goddess, as you just described, to me, like she's very separate from, say, Hecate or Artemis or anyone, because it is like it's a modern creation. And we've sort of created this new deity uh, that's just generically known as the goddess, who has a lot of traits of a lot of different goddesses because of that sort of movement to sort of see all goddesses as one for a while. She's kind of uh, grab bits and pieces from lots of deities, but she is distinct and very different from all of those other goddesses. So, you know, I, I really appreciated that in, in the book where you sort of talked about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's true that the goddess in scare quotes has a lot of features in common with various deities from the ancient world. She has a lot in common with Diana. She has a lot in common with Isis, but there are also lots of deities that she's not like, right? She's really has very little to do with the Morrigan. Um, yeah. the, you know, there's maybe a little bit of overlap if you like squint real hard, but those are two very different deities. And even the deities that she has a lot in common with, you know, Diana. Uh, Diana is a moon goddess. Diana is associated with witchcraft and magic. But there are other things that Diana is is not exactly like the goddess that we know today. Um, and what we have is is a real specific deity who you know is influenced by archaeological concepts that like now we know are not actually correct, but that were hugely influential in the 1900s. She's influenced by ceremonial magic through Aleister Crowley and Dion Fortune. She's influenced by ideas about witchcraft. And all of these things come together to allow for the goddess movement as we know it today to come into the world. And I think that's so cool. Yeah, I think it's great. And I, I, I think it's wonderful that you have like the reason behind this book, right? Because the books on the goddess are old and they do have a lot of bad archeological information, misinformation. They have the old political ideas. They have a lot of, a lot of extra gunk in there. Right. And there's not a lot of people writing about just the goddess today. There's not a lot of people writing about the gods in general. Right. Um, you know, I, there's some stuff on Odin that's come out. Diana Paxson had her book on Odin recently, but the theology part of magic and witchcraft tends to get a lot less attention. And fortunately, we're starting to see that tie, that pendulum swing now with people like yourself. And, um, you know, Diana Paxson has written some more on, on that. So there's some authors starting to come that way. But for so long, it was so focused on how do you practice magic and less on the nature of the gods and, you know, how this all works in, in the theology. Yeah. Well, and I mean, one of the other things uh, about a lot of the goddess books that exist that kind of chapped my ass was um, they tend to have a really narrow narrative about womanhood, 
about the connection between womanhood and reproduction, about like the goddess is womb power and therefore you can only worship the goddess if you have a womb. And, and that's like on top of being intensely transphobic, um, that's also just <laughs> not reflective of the way that a lot of women experience their gender and how they move in the world and, and how they connect to spirituality. Um, so, you know, that was that was a particular polemic of second wave feminism in the back half of the 20th century. It had a really important purpose, right? This idea that, you know, reproduction, menstruation, giving birth, like that those things could be sacred, could be hallmarks of divinity, as opposed to the patriarchal story that was being told about how those things were punishment for original sin. That was all very important but it's also really not reflective of the way that we think about the relationship between the goddess and womanhood, the relationship between womanhood and biology, the relationship between the goddess and gender. Like those things have kind of been shuffled around in the past 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really important for us to have a book about the goddess that talked about that. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because my spiritual community, the Temple of the Rebel Goddess here in Dayton, uh, one of the co-founders of the temple, Sarah Monroe, she works very much in women's mysteries. She has uh, her her own business, uh, the art of the art of wild pleasure, and she talks about helps women rediscover their bodies. But one of the things that I noticed that she says when she talks about ministration in um, in her work is she'll say for bodies that bleed, because she doesn't want to exclude people who still identify as women. So she doesn't just say women and then talk about menstruation. She says bodies that bleed. And I always really respected that she made that distinction. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that as well in light of sort of the goddess piece. Um, I think it also feeds into what you were talking about earlier about how queer people were often excluded from the traditions because they were fertility religions and we don't procreate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which, like, I, I'm going to go on a diatribe about fertility uh, because it's <laughs> because it's absolutely true that uh, in Wicca, in particular, the people who were founding the religion thought of it in some respects as a fertility religion. They thought of witches as sort of these ancient priests who helped to ensure the fertility of the land. But they were talking about the fertility of the land. They were talking <laughs> about the fertility of crops and livestock. And if you actually bother to comb through and look at the uses of the word fertility in those contexts, which I have done, um, it becomes incredibly apparent that they're they're not talking about babies. That's like that's a thing that's in the background. Sure, like, you know, let's go have babies if we want to, that's fine. But when they talk about witchcraft is about fertility, they're talking about the coming and going of life and death in the land. And that's yeah. the mystery that they're really chiefly concerned with. And that's something that's available to everyone, regardless of whether you experience sexual attraction, regardless of whether you experience same-sex attraction, regardless of whether you reproduce or have any intention of reproducing, right? The experience of life and, you know, fullness in the summer and then barrenness in the winter and that constant ebb and flow of the tides of life and death, that is a much bigger mystery than whether you have conceived a child. Yeah, absolutely. And we all experience that cycle, even if we're not procreating, we experience it in our energy, 
You know, we kind of move more, turn more inward. We sort of slow down in the winter, you know, and in the summer we, we get energized. We are more outward looking. Like we, we experience those cycles, whether we're, we're, we have children or not. It's part of, you know, it's an energetic model of really looking at the way time moves and how we experience that cycle of life and death. Yeah. No, absolutely. So it's, you know, I think this idea that witchcraft is a fertility religion or Wicca is a fertility religion um, has been co-opted as sort of a rhetorical device that's used to exclude queer people. But my experience of Wicca, at least, is about mysteries that are universal and are universally accessible. It's about things that we all experience in our lives. And the yeah. beauty of it is that we each experience them differently. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that, definitely. And it, that's really what magic should be. Um, the other thing I really noticed about your book and I appreciated is um, you almost take a sort of Joseph Campbell approach to, to the myths. So were you influenced by Joseph Campbell at all in, in the work? I read Joseph Campbell at a very young age. Um, I, I was reading Joseph Campbell in like, I had an English class in high school where we read Joseph Campbell and I don't understand yeah. why, but um, so, so Campbell was definitely influential on me in the early days. And likewise, I think you can see in some of these texts that I'm talking about in the book, you can see things that were influencing Joseph Campbell. Uh, so yeah. in particular, James Fraser has this idea of trying to produce a, a monomyth. He's trying to produce a universal myth that he thinks structures all religion. And yeah. that's uh, a very similar project to the one that Joseph Campbell would eventually pursue. And also the, the myth that Fraser comes up with about the goddess and her consort who dies and goes to the underworld, that itself is something that we see replicated in Campbell later on. So Campbell is yeah. definitely swimming around there somewhere, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I definitely noticed that. So uh, in, in looking at the book, um, wonderful. So one thing that I, I would love to get your perspective on is the number of gay men who come to witchcraft and to the goddess. What is it in, what is it in your, in your mind or in, in your opinion that draws queer men in particular, gay and bi men to the goddess? Um, because queer men are excluded by patriarchy. Mm. I think that a lot of cis heterosexual men uh, don't feel the need to seek out goddess religion because they fit much more comfortably in the established order of things. If yeah. your needs are being met, or at least if you feel like your needs are being met, by the patriarchal order, by the religion that you were raised with, then there's no need for you to go seeking something else. Whereas a lot of gay men uh, are rejected by the religions that they grew up with because of their identities, um, are rejected by society at large, or you know, if you live in, in more inclusive areas of the world, maybe you're not rejected by society at large, but there's still a rub where there's this sense of patriarchy not having been designed for you. You don't fit into the model of masculinity that patriarchy wants from you. And knowing that there, this dominant order of things isn't quite right for you, that it, it doesn't reflect who you are, I think incentivizes queer men to seek out an alternative 
way of viewing the world. And I think that's part of what drives more queer men as opposed to cis heterosexual men uh, into witchcraft, into goddess spirituality and into that sort of whole world. Because if, if you're feeling comfortable in the status quo, there's no reason for you to go looking for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely feel that, um, you know, and I definitely feel like that was my own experience. And, um, you know, added added to that for me was a, a very complicated relationship with my own father. So the idea of a father God really did not work for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, and I so and I've heard that from other queer men as well, that, you know, they just didn't get along with their fathers. And so thinking about God as as a father didn't didn't relate to them. So wonderful. Um, what advice do you have to queer men who are just starting down this path? Um, surround yourself with people who will love and support you for who you are in what you're doing. Uh, and that sounds like kind of obvious advice, but it like, I think that it's so important to have people who will say, yes, I see you for who you are. I see you for what you're exploring and trying to do, and I'm here with you for it. Even if those people are not themselves witchy or spiritual or, you know, even if those people are, you know, staunch atheists, whatever, as long as they see you and are willing to support you 100%, you, you, you got to have someone in your and you got to have someone that you can go to and talk to about this stuff and say, I've been really interested in such and such thing. And I'm thinking about maybe going to an open event, but I'm nervous. But, you know, like you have to have a community and that community doesn't have to be people who are all doing the same thing as you. But it has to be people who love you, who you can rely on and with whom you can be authentically yourself, both as a queer individual and as someone who is trying to explore spirituality and figure these things out. You gotta have someone that you can talk to about all of it. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's that's wonderful advice. So the other question I have for you is, I see this a lot in my work with, with gay men. There are some gay men who, whether it was religious trauma from, you know, their coming out process and, and being in a spiritual path that didn't accept them, or whether it's just not ever having been around spirituality, there are some queer men who have just sort of rejected all spirituality. You know, it doesn't exist. They're not interested in it. It's all about the physical life. And, and when they die, you know, they may not have any particular beliefs about what happens after that. What what are gay men missing out on if they don't explore their spirituality? Uh, you know, I, I don't believe that everyone needs spirituality. I, I think that you could put people under a microscope and there are two kinds of people. There are the people who need it and there are the people who don't. Uh, and if you genuinely don't need it in your life, that's okay. That's, you know, Good for you. Um, I think you owe it to yourself to at least ask the question, do I need this? Is this something that would serve me in my life? And the question, it's not, you know, people think that spirituality is about like allaying your fears about what might happen to you after you die, or that it's about teaching you the difference between right or wrong. And for me, at least, neither of those things is what my spirituality is about. My spirituality 
affords me a sense of transcendence and a sense of connection to something much larger than myself. And yeah. I need that in my life. Um, so I think the thing to ask yourself is, do I feel like that is missing? Do I feel like in the life that I currently have, I have an adequate connection to something bigger than me? And if the question is, yes, I have that, or if the answer is, yes, I have that, great, you are on the right track. If the answer is no, open some doors and see what's behind them and allow yourself to explore things that might give you that feeling of connection. Yeah, that's a great, great answer. Um, so as we're as we're running down on our time here, what might you want to say to listeners that we haven't gotten a chance to to touch on? Uh, I think that queerness is already a magic of its own kind. Uh, you know, queerness allows us to step outside of uh, the characters that have been sort of drawn up for us. It allows us to become other people than what we were told we were supposed to be. And that is radical and powerful and magical all on its own. And I think the point of queer spirituality, sort of coming back to the question that kicked us off, is to find an experience that uplifts that and that says this thing that you already are, look how magical it is, look how special it is, and then go from there. Yeah, I, I that's fantastic because it really is about the magic of who you are on all levels. And each one of us is magical in our own way. And of course, queerness gives us that ability to step outside of convention and sort of have an outsider view of things, which I think is why queer men tend to be the trendsetters. They tend to be the ones calling out things as like, you know, has anyone else noticed this? Like, because we are sort of, we do sort of step out of the systems and the norms and see things from an outsider perspective. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that is that is a powerful, magical gift. Um, so your book, Queen of All Witcheries, it, it's out currently and people can get that at preferably your independent bookseller, but Amazon can order directly from Llewellyn.com. <laughs> How do people get in touch with you, Jack, or follow what, you know, places that you're teaching or appearances that you're making? Yeah, um, I'm sort of all over the internet. So I have a YouTube channel, which is just my name, Jack Chanick. I'm the only one. You search me, I pop right up. Um, I have a blog, which is Jack of Wands, W-A-N-D-S, like the student of tarot, Jack of Wands tarot.wordpress.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Jack of Wands. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Jack underscore of underscore Wands. Uh, so you can sort of find me. I'm, I'm all over the internet. Uh, and currently I don't have any big uh, appearances scheduled, uh, largely because I am flat broke. But, uh, you know, if, if I end up uh, going to any sort of festivals or conventions and teaching anything, uh, I will be sure to share that across my various pieces of social media. Yeah, you just hit on a pet peeve of mine, and that is the scarcity consciousness in the pagan community that we don't pay our presenters and <laughs> workshop teachers to come to our events. So, but um, but that's a whole other topic for another time. So I will include those links in the description below so that you can get in touch with Jack. 
go check out his book. It is a fantastic book on the goddess and really just touches on so many different aspects of the goddess throughout time and her evolution of our understanding of her as the modern goddess that many of us know and love and appreciate. Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and, and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. This has been the Queer Spirituality Podcast with Julian Cross and Hill. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving a rating on whatever site you get your podcasts at. Rating the show allows other people to discover it and be exposed to these ideas around queer spirituality. You can also find my blog and past episodes of this podcast at www.queerspirituality.net. That's www queerspirituality.net. You can also there find links to the Queer Spirituality Facebook group, my various social channels where you can get involved in the discussion or send me your feedback or questions or things you'd like to hear on the show. Thank you again for listening and for your support. Bright blessings.